Welcome to the Innovation Race Podcast, where we meet fascinating inventors, innovators, politicians, and leaders who share the view that what's best for our country is to protect patents and keep innovation in America. Now, here's your host, Jenny Beth Martin. Scott Keefe is formerly a commissioner to the United States International Trade Commission. He was nominated by President Obama and confirmed unanimously by the United States Senate. Today, he's a law school professor at George Washington Law School. Scott's understanding of intellectual property, national security, and economics is in-depth and academic. Get ready to learn a lot about some of the key topics in our documentary film, Innovation Race, available on the Salem Now platform. Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jenny Beth, for putting together the great film and for inviting me to chat with you. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, you, We were talking before we got started here about everything that you, you teach as a law professor, and you said... Um, Patents, intellectual property, contracts, business law, and international law. And it seems to me that there are probably several common common theme, themes throughout those, but one of those would be in intellectual property and property rights altogether. Um, is that is that correct? Yeah, and, absolutely right. And and really, all of those things have underneath them a couple of threads that are in common: uh, technology and markets. And complexity. Um, and how, when when you're dealing with technology and markets and complexity, and we've seen a lot of advances in technology over the last, well, over the last, my entire life, but especially um, in the last 20, 20 or so years with the advent of the iPhone, what, um, what do you think is happening to being able to protect that intellectual property and, and and to protect the advances in technology as it becomes more and more complex. Is our system keeping up with it or, sure. or not? So the U.S. system uh, in particular had gone through uh, a period in the, the years, say, from 1980 through about 2000, uh, when we were seeing a lot of positive changes. And since then, we've seen a lot of negative changes. So it, when things were going well, things were going well and going well ever more each year. And when things have been going in a negative direction, unfortunately, it's been going uh, uh, not well and faster not well. So um, what, what are the things that you're seeing that make you concerned about how it's going not well compared to how it was when it was going well? One of the interesting things about this good versus bad uh, shift is it's bipartisan in both directions. So both political parties have been connected with some good changes and both political parties have been connected with some bad changes. We've seen this good and bad many times in our nation's history. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm ultimately optimistic. Things will get better and we'll get out of it. Um, but at its base, the uh, one theme that ties all of these changes together is taking the detailed rules in the patent system, for example, and shifting them just a little bit mm -hmm. so they depend less on 
ordinary, objective facts and more on a bureaucrat's individual uh, preferences. And when things shift from facts to bureaucratic preferences, they shift in a powerful way in our society and in our economy. They end up just favoring very large established players, what, what people often call crony capitalism or right. corporate capitalism. Uh, it plays into the hand by design of corporate capitalism. And when you're dealing with the law, you're shifting from hard facts that would be admissible in court to somebody's, um, whatever they, their life experiences are. And those are very nebulous and they change from people to, from person to person to person. So you have no uniformity, right? Especially when it's not even, you're not even asking them what is their life experience. You're asking them, what will they tell you in a given moment? what they'd like you to think their life experience is. So, for example, it is very different to ask the question, tell me on a particular date in our history, say June 15th of 2008, mm -hmm. were people in this particular field of science or engineering or business, were they actually doing specific things? That's a question akin to the question you ask in an automobile accident at a, a traffic light intersection. Right. You're asking ordinary human beings, I know we all have different views and perspectives, but was there actually anyone standing at the intersection on that date at that time? Did they, for example, take notes or have a camera running? Did they see, was the light green or red when the car went into the intersection? That's a very different set of questions than asking us here today in 2022, put on your fancy robes as a government official imbued with power, discretion, and expertise, and ask you, do you think sitting here now, folks back then would have done it? That's a, that's a kind of a very playful question that is the plaything of trouble. And it, it's not even factual. It's just... Not even close. It kind of sounds factual, but it's totally about the administrative bureaucrats' uh, uh, recollection at best, or maybe even good faith preference. And look, we do live in a representative democracy. We do delegate to our government officials to do lots of things. But we also recognize that with that delegation, with the trust comes the verify. And so we don't delegate every decision and we tie the hands of our decision makers. What the patent system used to be was a patent system that tied the hands of the officials making specific determinations in the system, mm -hmm. tied their hands to ground everything in a factual record. Was the light green at a specific point in time when the car entered the intersection? 
and prove it. Show me the video or the lab notebook or bring in the witnesses who are going to testify. Subject them to cross-examination. That's all very different quality of questioning than sitting here today in 2022. Do, do you think you could have made that invention? That That is a, a hugely different approach. Um, what do you think that that is? Our films go through this, but tell me in your own words what you think this is doing to to the patent system and to the business and technology spaces. So it's it's twisting them. It's shifting them. We we all can feel very happy about business and successful businesses that are so successful they become big. The question is, do we want to be so happy about them that we make every component of the system bend to their will. We could be happy about them. We could congratulate them. We could even enjoy their ongoing role in our society. But that's very different than giving them the keys to our kingdom. Right. And when we shift government decision-making so that all of the details of the government decision-making turn on flexible discretion of decision makers, we create, we empower the politically uh, powerful corporations who want to pour money down K Street. We, in effect, run the lobbying auction house 24 hours a day. And everybody who plays in that system gets paid. It's a very lucrative system, but it, it, it is... Um, Instead of being the kind of system we think of as a necessary but limited thing for our society, and we turn it into everywhere all the time, and it precludes so much else. If we give into it too much, we squeeze out or crowd out everything else. So in particular, small and medium players are crowded out of the system. And what do you think that that will wind up doing to um, innovation and in, in our future if we're crowding out the smaller players? So it, it is um, the opposite of competition. It is the opposite of innovation. It is the opposite of diversity and inclusion. Uh, if we think about the things that both political parties do feel good about and do share, they want a growing economy both of them, for America and the world. They want that to be dynamic, not static. But that does require change. That requires changes in technology, changes in business structures. And if we give in to this corporate crony political lobbying strategy game, we crowd out all of that change. For a short period of time, Mm -hmm. even those companies will like it. In the medium and long term, even those big companies won't eventually like it, but it will be too late. By the time that we realize just how crowded out they are and the opportunity that we have lost, we it it may be that our we wind up being at a disadvantage to China, which we talk about in the film. But um, it it just those the implications of that are are very concerning 
They are. They're concerning from an economic uh, an economic perspective. They're concerning from a a, a a social society perspective. They're concerning from a military perspective. So, yes, they are concerning. the The good news, though, continues to be that relatively small shifts shifting back mm-hmm. our system to what we've had several times in our nation's history under both political parties. Mm-hmm. So we know we can do it. If we think about how we talk to our children and we, we want to tell our children honestly when things are going to be hard, but we also want to tell them, we don't want to shine them on, but we want to let them know, actually, you've got this. You've done this before. Right. The good news is we've got this. We've done this before. We have to make a choice to do it again, but we can do it. It's not hard. Okay. And when you say we can do it and it's not hard, what are the things that you think specifically need to be changed and adjusted to make the shift back? Sure. It, it, it all boils down to the wisdom uh, uh, in, in, in uh, Western civilization. We often study uh, the, the you know, Greek literature. Uh, Ulysses tied himself to the mast. He tied himself to the mast not because he somehow thought the songs he would hear would be bad songs. He tied himself to the mast for the opposite reason. The songs would be so attractive, he'd steer his boat towards one set of rocks or the other, and either way, crash. By tying himself to the mast, he sailed between Scylla and Charybdis. He sailed between the two seemingly beautiful songs. What can we do in the patent system? We can tie our hands to the mast, return to more fact-based decision-making, less bureaucratic deference or discretion. So, yes, litigation in the American system is on average expensive and time-consuming, but we get something. We all in the system get something really beautiful, really powerful, really good from that expenditure of effort and money. What we get is truth. What we get is people actually have to come to court and they actually have to bring in those documents, those videos, those lab notebooks, and they actually have to show, okay, back then, June 15th, 2008, Here are lab notebooks that show, or here are student theses that actually were available in a library on a specific date. They count as prior art because they were there, or they don't count as prior art because we can't find any evidence they actually were there. We tie ourselves to the mast, whether we're talking about what counts as patent infringement Mm -hmm. or patent validity or the rules for the patent remedy, or for our analysis of property or contracts or antitrust, for each of these areas of law, we tie our hands to the mast to make the decision-making grounded in actual facts. Okay, I think that's a really good um, action item for us all to be considering that we need to be looking at the actual facts when we're dealing with patents and, well, so much in our lives these days, but especially as we're talking about about how to correct the problems with the patent system. Um, 
when I, when were you the commissioner for international trade? Uh, I was there from, uh, I believe, 2013 to 2017. And what does that position do? And, and did you deal with patents and intellectual a property absolutely. during that? Yeah, we, we, uh, we do a, a number of things, my colleagues and I at, at the agency at the time, uh, and that agency still. Um, uh, it's an old part of the government. It's a part of the government that grew up after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a part of the government that is designed to focus on the border the relationship that our economy has with the rest of the world. Okay. And so it does a couple of things. One of the things it does is adjudicate patent disputes around imports. Okay. So all the stuff coming into the United States from outside of the United States, all of the IP litigation about that stuff goes to the ITC. Okay. And um, then does it, when it has that kind of litigation and it's going to the ITC, does it go through the, the normal courts as well? Uh, so you can often have dual proceedings, but um, for a range of reasons, most parties prefer one or the other. You can have both, and some do. Um, the ITC process is like the court process in that it is Fortunately or unfortunately, mm -hmm. expensive because it depends not on what a government official says she or he kind of remembers mm -hmm. or kind of thinks or mm -hmm. wishes. It depends entirely upon the factual record. Okay. And so it's unlike what happens inside most executive branch agencies, right. which are designed, we design our executive branch to be very responsive to politics, mm -hmm. political pressure, prerogative. And as a result, we elect those people right. every several years. ITC commissioners are nominated by a president, confirmed by a Senate, and then serve nine-year terms. Okay. They're staggered terms in the statute so that the commission itself is not usually changing over. Uh, uh, those terms are staggered precisely so that as one comes off, another comes okay. on. Uh, the chairmanship of the commission is required by the statute to rotate every two years, regardless of what the president designates. So it's designed to do that horrible or perhaps beautiful thing we would like done in our government, which is for government actors to have to talk to each other and have to explain to each other why they're making a determination and then show their cards, show in the factual record what supports that determination so that not only can the other parts of that agency verify mm -hmm. with trust you want verify, but also the other parts of the government and the people get to look in the record and say, wait a minute, we, d we don't see the thing that, that this set of government officials says they see. We, we don't see that. 
um, it seems like the rotation of the the commissioners, the way that it is set up, it helps um, insulate America and our trade from from politics to give us a bit more continuity and stability with the rest of the the world. Yeah, it coerces collaboration. Okay. It it is um, a, a multi member body. There are an even number of commissioners. There are six. Oh, and that's probably not fun sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely, but but the beauty of it, and the statute requires there can be no more than three in one political party. Okay. So this is all, remember, part of what drove us to war with ourselves in the Civil War was slavery, mm-hmm. but it was only part. The other part was the same trade issues we're now fighting over today, uh, imports from outside of the United States. And this agency was created to try to address that political tension, not by pretending you can wish it away, but by coercing out of it collaboration, by forcing the two sides to show their hand to each other in front of society. And that still works in the manner in which we would like to see. It's still working well. Interestingly enough, the same political groups that um, poured a lot of money lobbying dollars down mm-hmm. K Street to change the patent system in 2011. They have been pouring money down K Street every year to try to get rid of this role of the International Trade Commission. Um, so far, they've not been successful. You you said, and I know you've talked about this a little bit, but from the time you started started teaching law to now that the patent system really has just flipped. Yes. Explain, can you elaborate on that just a little bit more? Sure. So when we talk about the rules for patent validity, Mm -hmm. we used to have rules that were very focused on these facts and we've shifted to make rules that are very responsive to uh, the discretion of government bureaucrats and you know one of the things that's important to remember is no matter how well motivated and well reasoned a government bureaucrat can be she's going to be no smarter than someone before they take on that role and she's not going to suddenly become more ignorant when she retires out of that role she's the same person uh when she enters civil service and leaves it uh so the question we then have to ask is we know this. Do we want to give these people policy roles? We do over a range of policies. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we want everything to be a policy question. There are a lot of questions we specifically set our rules to be tied to the mast on, not to be policy questions, to be fact questions. So, questions about what counts as prior art in the patent system to make the patents valid, we can agree not all patents all the time everywhere. We could agree we want limits on patents. The big changes that have been made in the patent system have been to those limits. Okay. And they've been changes that take what counts as a limit, how you enforce those limits, and flips them from being limits based on fact to limits based on bureaucratic discretion. Okay. And then speaking about security and, and national security, what do you, um, do you, do you see 
that there are problems for America because of the weakening in the patent system from a, a national security standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. There are, uh, and they're serious. Um, and unfortunately, uh, they're, um, they're not hard to grasp, mm -hmm. but they're not quite as obvious or on the surface as people like to think. So, um, it, Yes, it is true that if our economy doesn't grow quickly and China's does, uh, they are um, they go from being a large collaborator to being a large threat. Um, yes, patents are important to our economy, and yes, um, big companies are in our economy contribute to our economy, but there are some subtleties here. So let's talk about some of the subtleties. One of the things that we see the Chinese courts and agencies doing mm -hmm. is becoming expert at many of the things our and our friends in Europe and Asia, like Korea and Japan, um, our courts and agencies are, are good at. So our courts and agencies the Chinese courts and agencies, they're good at being what seems like fair between, say, the two parties disputing in front of the tribunal. Chinese courts are getting fair. Our courts and agencies are well-trained and well-versed in the language of technology and law and political science. Their courts and agencies are well-versed in the same things. But it does not follow that they're working the same way ours are. So let me be specific about yeah. that. In a U.S. court or a British court or a German court or a Japanese court, you can go through a lot of examples, it would be inappropriate and probably very bad if the officials working in the court observed and listened to party A's information and party B's information and then went and picked up the phone and talked to all the other parts of their government or went and picked up the phone and talked to national champions in their economy right. about party A's information or party B's information. Right. In the United States, to be clear, people would go to jail for that. Right. We have powerful rules that we actually enforce where actual human beings pay big fines or actually go to jail for doing anything resembling that. In the Chinese courts and agencies, the exact opposite is true. Because of the military-civil fusion by which they run their system, mm -hmm. their entire national system, instead of going to jail because you did, as a court employee, report out, you may very well go to jail because you didn't, yeah. as an employee, report out to the army or state champions in that economy. Right. So... It is very common in U.S. policy discussions around patents for people to have highfalutin, 
erudite debates about, well, are you really saying the Chinese can't do adjudication the way we can? No, they do it quite well. Are you really saying they're biased? In fact, I challenge, I, I call you biased for calling them biased. Well, wait a minute. They do run highly professionalized systems. They do run them in ways that are highly scientific and legally sophisticated. But they also tell you and show you that they're running them in the opposite direction than the way we run ours. They're not shy about it. They're right. not secret about right. it. They do it. They walk the walk and they talk the talk. They run a totally organized system where everybody in that system is required to be reporting up the chain of command in ways that are the opposite of the rules we enforce, Europeans enforce, right. Koreans, Japanese enforce, in the exact opposite direction. So they're not really paying attention to international standards or norms when it, it comes to to these types of... Well, they're paying very good attention at talking about ours <laughs> right. while, in fact, explicitly talking about their own as different. Shame on us for thinking that if they tell us they're going to do it <laughs> and show us they're doing it, that somehow it will work out well for right. us. Right. Shame on us. They right. are telling us they mean different. They're telling us they do different. We should believe what they say and do because they say it and do it. Right. And it's different. It is the opposite in terms of how they're structuring independence. We structure in independence. We build these systems with checks and balances. We send people to jail if they leak information. Right, right. They send people to jail if they don't, don't leak. leak. Wow. They send people to jail if they are independent. How right. dare they challenge the system? Here, we have a free press. There, they don't. So these are very different systems, and these are not just accidental, on the side, mm -hmm. irrelevant. This is like going back to uh, high school physics and right. drawing a force diagram and forgetting to include gravity. Uh, <laughs> gravity is there. You can ignore it, but that brick will still fall on your foot. And by the way, it'll hurt. Even if you ignore it, the rules still exist. You can ignore the gravity, but the gravity will still be happening. They run, the Chinese government tells the world, we in China are running a military civil fusion system. We are running it with a very powerful centralized state. We are running a command and control economy tied together with a command military. And we're running it all through our central system. And everything in this system is required to work within this system in this way. That's fine. That's their choice. Right. And we respect that choice, but we shouldn't ignore it. Right. Um, and we should not model our own system uh, in such a manner. And, and we shouldn't, even if we think that, that, um, uh, that just running our system is going to somehow protect us, it, it won't. We, we have to recognize that, that um, there are relatively modest, 
but powerfully effective things we can do that are not xenophobic, that are not aggressive against, right. but are protective of ourselves. And what do you think some of those relatively modest things we can do are? So if we keep our rules in the context of patents mm-hmm. uh, to be tied to a mast, if we keep them grounded in a factual record, right. if all of those rules are operating that way, then political power, national origin, those things don't matter very much. The light is red or green, not because of political party or national identity or geographic location. Right. The light was green on a certain date or it wasn't. The lab notebook happened, the prior art happened, or it didn't happen. Right. And if it didn't happen, if there is no prior art, well, then there's no prior art. We don't have to argue over it. We can notice that it's not there. Right. Um, it, it seems to me that, that me that's one of the most important changes that we can make is just adjusting our system so that we're sticking to facts. And it's a hard facts. Did you have the artwork? Did you really invent it? Uh, were you the fr- and show us the lab show notebooks. Us, uh, and the um, American Invents Act changed. Um, it, it created the PTAB, but it also changed the first from first to invent to first to file. And I think we need to be back at first to invent. In- a- absolutely right. And notice how the PTAB operates. It operates faster and less expensively by explicitly requiring fewer facts. Well, there's no free lunch. If you don't have facts to support the determination, what is supporting the determination? The putative expertise and wisdom of these government officials. Well, they may be truly kind, dedicated, intelligent public servants, but here's the one thing we know they haven't done because it's not in the budget, because it's not in the record. They haven't gone out to actually find those facts. Instead, they assert either a policy preference, the nature of these patents, whatever these means, their green energy or their their, uh, affiliated with a political party in one way, or they're uh, a segment of, uh, of an industrial base that is a political favored industrial base. Okay, that's that's an interesting way to run a um, a tax code where you want to pick winners and losers, and we can have that conversation. Uh, I think many of us are skeptical about that, but even if we're going to notice that it happens, why should we have it happen outside of the tax code? Right. Why should we do it through the back door of the patent system by giving executive branch politically responsive? non-factual record-enriched decision-making power to do the decision-making without that factual record. It's just, it, it makes no sense why we are doing this, except that it must benefit a certain group of people. Oh, absolutely. It's a government picking winners and losers or creating uh, a law that in, inadvertently or, or advertently creates a situation where you're picking winners and losers. It completely tilts the adjudication system to favor those who can do the lobbying spend. Okay. So it will 
always favor large established players and always disfavor small and medium-sized enterprises. Now, again, you could perfectly be congenial about large established players and switch this system back. It wouldn't be an anathema to large established players. It would leave room for the addition of small and medium-sized players. So here's a specific example. In the 1980s, Europe, Japan, North America, the United States, all had large pharmaceutical companies. Okay. In the United States, after 1980, we made good choices. President Carter started it. President Reagan finished it. Two political parties, Democrats and Republicans, made intentional changes to our patent system. They were explicit about it. They were collaborative about it. One of the big changes was the Bayh-Dole Act, Senator Bayh, Democrat, Senator Dole, mm -hmm. Republican. These changes made a much stronger approach to patents in biotechnology. We did it in the United States. Europe and Japan did not. After 1980, all three of those systems still had large pharmaceutical companies. It's not like they disappeared in the U.S. They, we had them before. We had them after. Mm -hmm. Same with Europe and Japan. But only in the United States and only after 1980 did you see two big changes. A huge increase in the number of small and medium-sized biotech companies and a huge increase in the number of new drugs and new devices brought to market. So this is not a story of uh, somehow um, access to knowledge. This information was flowing all around the globe. People can read each other's languages. These things are getting published all over the place. Uh, right. Nor is it an access to capital story. There's money flowing all over the globe in the 1980s. This is a very connected economy by the 1980s. This is an example of a concrete set of specific changes to the patent system, mm -hmm. tying our hands to the mast, encouraging, enabling property rights and patents in biotechnology. And what did we get? Much more competition, much more diversity and inclusion, much better access to individual, by individual consumers to new drugs and new devices. I'd say that sounds like a pretty nice outcome for everybody. So um, tie your hands to the mass, stick to the facts, and the government really just needs to get out of the way. Is there anything that else that you want to make a point about? I, I will um, just offer, if it's of help, mm -hmm. uh, a way to think about what some of the large companies are doing when they say, we like patents too. Gosh, look, we have so many. Right. One of the things that's worth noticing is what they're doing with those patents. So yes, they do have large patent portfolios, but they're doing very different things than anyone can do in a patent system when hands are tied to the mast, when facts really drive the decision making. So here's what I mean. In the patent system that is a strong 
innovation-oriented patent system. Patents are like beacons in the dark. If we turn out all of the lights here and give one person a flashlight, everyone else in the room knows where that person is because they're holding a flashlight they've turned on. Like a beacon in the dark, right. a patent can draw to itself all of the other people in the market who are interested in that technology. That predictable enforcement, that fact-based decision-making, that brings venture capitalists together with laborers, together with marketers, together with inventors, and that's how commercialization happens. That's a property-based patent system. Right. When that system is operating, small and medium size and large players can use patents to commercialize technology. When that's not happening, you can still use patents. But now you're using patents very differently. How are you using them? In the property-based system, you're focused, you're coming to the beacon, you're interacting with patents with an awareness that there either is prior art or there isn't. Those patents are valid or they're not. And anyone can go find that prior art. Right. Anyone can assess the validity and infringement of those patents. So in a typical patent case in that setting, plaintiff and defendant are disciplining themselves in the arguments they make. Okay. Here's why. If they argue that the patent covers the world, there'll be more infringement, right. but there'll be more prior art. The patent will be at risk. If they argue the patent is as narrow as a pinprick, there'll be no prior art, but it won't be commercially relevant. It'll right. be easy to avoid infringement. And that self-disciplining happens because the two sides have opposing interests. Right. And those opposing interests let them find those facts out in the world. Go talk to people at the intersection. Go look at the lab notebooks. Right. In a system where it all is about government discretion, there's no one on the other side who's ever really testing. So you, right. now you're using the patent system very differently. Here's how they use it. One of the ways they use it is they say to their regulators outside of the patent system, for example, a food and drug regulator or an antitrust regulator. They say to their regulator, regulator, you caught me. I am a big player. I can never escape your attention. I'm so big. Let's agree. Don't shut me down. After all, lots of grandparents have invested their pensions in me. Right. Lots of workers work for me. And those grandparents and those workers vote for you, the government, so don't shut me down. Keep me in business. But I'll agree, I'm only going to charge prices based on how innovative I am. Will you, as a food and drug or consumer safety or antitrust regulator, agree to let me make money for being innovative? Well, what government official is going to say no to that question? Right. Now, we're just going to negotiate over how innovative I am. That's where my patent portfolio comes in. I now show you as a large established player 
dear regulator, look at my thousands of patents in my portfolio. But these are patents that no one's ever testing. These are patents with no one on the other side making the validity or infringement argument. Because after all, these regulators are not patent regulators. These regulators are expert in all sorts of other things. They're expert in antitrust, or they're expert in consumer safety, or they're expert in food and drug. They're expert in other things. After all, isn't it true that if you're expert in something, you're not expert in everything else? Right. So these people are interacting large established players with large government regulators in this kind of fantasy game where we talk about patents as if they're consequential, but we're just using them as political chits to do kabuki theater in front of an audience to pretend that this is an innovative economy because we can count patents. So it's not about counting patents. It's about the rules about patent enforcement and patent validity. If it's just a kabuki game of counting patents, then you have a very different strategy. And the large companies have this down to a T, this game, this strategy. They play this game with our government and other governments of the world. And the second game they play is the tax game, the game around the patent box, the game that says, let me keep my capital gains or my royalties or my income in a special offshore box. We're going to link that with, um, I guess, something of value. Let's call that my patent portfolio. And now we're going to tax that at a favorable rate. So these large companies are playing very sophisticated, very high value to them games with their patent portfolios, but it doesn't resemble ordinary patent enforcement. Um, We have to... We have to get this fixed. So that's what we're hoping that our the people who are watching the podcast and listening to the podcast and who go and watch the documentary Innovation Race understand because this this can't continue. It's going to harm America in the long run if it continues the way that it is. And as you said, it doesn't take major changes. It just takes some small shifts shifts to get it back in the right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely, Jenny Beth. You are focusing on the right issues, and it's great that you've put so much of this together in your movie, and it's great that you're convening these conversations. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for participating in the documentary, and we um, really appreciate your your time. And for everyone who is watching, make sure that you check out the film at innovationracemovie.com. Thank you for being with us today. I'm Jenny Beth Martin with Tea Party Patriots, executive producer of Innovation Race. The Innovation Race podcast is hosted by Jenny Beth Martin and produced by Kevin Mooneyhan, Lori Heiselman, and Andy Peterson. Luke Livingston directs the video podcast. Innovation Race podcast is a production of Tea Party Patriots Action. For more information, visit teapartypatriots.org. That's teapartypatriots.org. 